Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Will this first prince of Prosser ever actually worry black? Is Cat a proper lady? And will Callow actually produce the hero that the villains are so concerned about? With black on hand? I doubt it. Before embarking on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. One for the fool, and one for all those pesky relatives. Dread Emperor Vindictive I. I wonder if that's going to be foreshadowing. Maybe by the end of the story, two people will die. Two main characters. I'm sure there are probably soldiers in the background who died in whatever the inciting incident was. Some revolution or something. I don't really get the politics yet. I was going to say, we've already had two named characters die with the, the two guards last chapter, so... They were related. Mm. We get a, a moment that uh, is reminiscent of some of the uh, the language we use, the long price here. Despite this being price and not callow, revenge, holding a grudge, that sort of thing, it seems to be maybe a running theme that we'll be running into every chapter, perhaps? You know, I'm thinking it through, and off the top of my head, I don't know which chapter wouldn't have that. Well, I think it is very fitting, considering our main character here, that Kat is nearly immediately questioning whether her previous actions were just or fair or regretful, and then just deciding she didn't particularly care anyway. It's just really nice to have Kat be Kat from the very beginning. You have to understand, she's the protagonist. And (laughs) sure, maybe she killed some people. And sure, maybe later on she might work with the villains or be a villain or I don't know what happens in the layer books, but become a dark priestess of an evil set of gods or something. But she doesn't like her country being occupied. So cut her some slack, man. Doesn't like her country being occupied. She can't begin to fathom why villains behave the way they do. Kat's just, she's a hero in the making. There's a lot of talk about Uh, In this chapter specifically, Black being concerned about the creation of new heroes. And, you know, the the way this is set up, there's definitely some hinting and nudging that perhaps Cat and Black will be 
rivals that that cat will grow into the sort of thing that black fears well fears is a strong word i don't think black is a particularly fearful man the the sort of thing that black is here to deal with sure cat makes some decisions that aren't exactly the most heroic decisions in the world but you know she's dealing with an occupation that's how those things are does this actually mean that over the course of the seven books, Catherine is tempered by her involvement with and later leadership of evil? And where in this initial setup where her actions cannot be judged, but no villain could possibly have justification, she's actually initially on the path to have the same moral decrepitude as the Grey Pilgrim? I think about halfway through your question, I knew that's what you were building up to, and I was shaking my head. How dare you compare Kat to Tariq? One of them is the greatest villain of the age one of the most vile people we meet in this entire story and the other one is just doing what she can to protect her people i'm starting to wonder how many times throughout the next 12 years we're going to get into discussion about Tariq that is basically just me talking about how much i hate him you have to leave some for me (laughs) the real hope here is that we use the exact same joke every time perfect perfect literally every time he comes up I think the bigger concern would be restraining ourselves. I I really don't see that being something that we'll miss a a chance to do. What I do appreciate about Catherine's uh, introspection, her self-reflection, it isn't so much that she, in the course of a sentence, tries to feel regret, fails, and shrugs it off, but rather that instead of regret or shame or self-reproach, her only real reaction is, huh, Murder is tiring work. That's her initial reaction, is just the physicality of it. But then the next thought, after dealing with her hair and all of that, is just instantly blaming Black and maybe Captain as well for what happened. I mean, the, the very the start of the very next paragraph is I was starting to think I'd been steered in the direction of taking those lives, which is interesting. It doesn't feel like I'm entirely like she's trying to weasel out of the responsibility. She's very well aware that she did the murdering. But Kat becomes a master manipulator of people through stories, and having her own story begin through some minor manipulation, perhaps, is a is a nice learning experience for her. It's, it's nice to see that she took that and said, oh, now this is an interesting idea, and really just ran with it. While at the same time demonstrating what later becomes clear as a an immutable part of her character, she says, not that being steered changes anything. I made the decision and made it for my own reasons. Catherine never has difficulty taking the blame, taking the responsibility, taking the moral or spiritual or even physical cost, and frankly refusing to share. She is pretty selfish with her sacrifices, yes. We did bring this up last episode in a relatively flip manner, but she does think about how she had tried to give the knife back the night before and had been told it was hers. No spoilers, our dear listeners, but uh, keep an eye on the knife. Chekhov is smiling right now. Because he's dead and his flesh has rotted away, he's a skull. And skulls are constantly smiling, as we all know. There's quite a bit of discussion about being an orphan in Prace Run Callow and the boons and 
obstacles that arrive from that. And I have to say that it's interesting for for Kat to have such a nuanced view of it uh, coming from the inside. She's not, I don't know, when you when you have a story like this, there's a lot of times a evil house mother and the orphans receive absolutely no care and the, it's just eating eating bricks and sleeping on dirt and all that. But it's it's interesting to see this direct result of the sort of things that Black will talk about later on this early, where having your orphans treated abysmally is really just asking for heroes or the sort of people who will rise up in rebellion after being associated with the various, um, oh boy, uh, dark guilds, evil, whatever the the assassins or the thieves guild yes the dark guilds they're brought up next chapter right that's that's what i was looking for or at least the sort of people that would be associated with the the dark guilds and thus be maybe an issue for praise down the line it's just it's just a nice bit of writing to get the proof and the world building backgrounds to something that is told to us the reader and the protagonist later on and this orphanage project is also then a very interesting subversion and embrace of a trope already at this point in the story. We see Kat has a stereotypical trouble with the, I believe they call her a matron, which having read more of this book is a weird title to give to a non-green skin. But <laughs> the matron and Kat have tension, have difficulties. Kat gets in trouble, but it's not because she's a precocious young orphan who's going to make her own way in the world. She's fighting. She's joined Fight Club. Someone talked about Fight Club. Matron's worried about her. So we have the subversion of what an orphanage is, but in the embrace of the orphan's story that we typically see. But the other thing I think worth mentioning in the face of what's the noun version of orphan, orphanitude, orphium, orphagraphy, orphography, orphana, is there a word? You're, I think you're about there. You almost have it. But the other interesting thing in this story, in light of Kat's orphulescence, I'm not. The interesting thing about the story, in light of Kat's status as an orphan, is how we see, I think, a really cool embrace of family over the course of the story. Kat develops a great found family, this monster whom she is already plotting to use against his own empire, becomes something of a father figure and then reified as one. And yet there's a total disinterest in whatever spawned Catherine, whoever birthed her, whoever uh, sired her. The story doesn't discredit or disrespect family, but it refuses to privilege biology over bond. It stands as an argument to the affirmative that blood of the covenant is thicker than water of the womb. That, that does come up time and time again. I mean, even just looking at only the the woe, you've got Cat, who is Cat. You've got Ranger and her, I'm already calling her Ranger. You've got Archer and her relationship, such as it is with Ranger. You've got, I suppose there's, there's something going on with Z's that's questionable. And there's definitely something arcane in his birth. And he's an adopted child, I believe, explicitly. But his fathers are the closest parents of anyone in this text. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I'm running through and trying to think of married couples or couples in a relationship who have children. And Ziza's parents, his fathers are definitely right up there as some of the only on-screen 
people in a functioning relationship who have kids. Which is deeply amusing considering it's a relationship that's built on a contract and not a standard marriage contract, but an infernal pact. And you know what? They are the best couple in the series, hands down. They really are. Evil, <laughs> as all get out. Uh, one of them's the literal sex demon. <laughs> and the other is Warlock, which is not typically a name one associates with altruism or heroism. But I think it's interesting that we were talking about the biological parenthood and how that, or even just family in general, and how that's not as important. And yet, skipping ahead just a bit, when Black shows up, Kat's first question to him here is making sure that he's not actually her biological father returned to pick her up. It's it's a nice bit of, read on a reread, it's a nice bit of maybe tongue-in-cheek foreshadowing. But in light of our discussion, it's also very amusing that that's her first question, that that's her gut instinct. And additionally, shows her powerful natural inclination towards what Black teaches her to master more than anyone else. This name lore, this art of interpreting the story. It's natural to her that, of course, a mysterious, well, the mysterious apparition of a great and powerful figure saving a child who sees no direct connection to him, that's probably her dad. It's a pretty safe bet. Following up on Black letting Kat down and really disappointing her by not being her actual father. I think it's important to bring up our next First Prince watch. Every time she comes up, I, I feel the need to mention it, if only for your sake, but she comes up here in the context of maybe being someone who might worry Black enough that he's he would keep a, a long-lost child safe. And she's really right on the money there, isn't she? Bringing up uh, Cordelia as <laughs> as a potential concern. She absolutely is. Where is this in the text? This is after she asks Black if um, he's her father. After that conversation ends, it's a paragraph where she says, I couldn't think of a lot of people who'd worry the man sitting across from me, truth be told. End of that paragraph. Which is itself a very great line. The first prince of the Principate, maybe? Rumors had it she'd finally put an end to their civil war, so they were probably going to start looking at their neighbors again. Not merely, this is someone who might worry Black, but a pretty prophetic foreshadowing of Book 3, Book 4, or Echoes of the Crusade. Was that a crusade? It was a crusade at that point too, right? Yes. I think when Prosser interacts with Callow directly, I think that's a crusade from the get-go. Is it the same crusade? Or do they have two crusades in the series? I don't... Do they actually formalize the last... I was about to say section, but the last half of the whole series as a crusade? Or is it just sort of the thing that everybody's doing? Not sure. Though I do wish that we had seen this happen in history. The Crusaders came to Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, they ally with Saladin and go off against the Mongols. That would have been sick. That would be an interesting timeline to have Saladin alongside the Mongols. But yes, it would be. It would have been a, an interesting twist rather than having the Mongols just split up and fight everybody. It would be an interesting timeline, but that was the limit of my, hmm, which empires were around in... Thousand eleven hundred ish. I mean, you only Saladin only misses the Mongols by I don't know less than a century and a half, so you were pretty close. Broad strokes. One thing that amused me deeply upon a reread: Cat wakes up 
tries to figure out if she has any issues with having become a murderer, has no issues because she's cat, heads downstairs, sees Scribe, who is plain face, mm-hmm. and then uh, finds out she's there, asks what she should call her. She says Scribe. And, oh, that wasn't a name. It was a name. The conquest is laid at the feet of the five calamities in the stories. The Black Knight, Warlock, Captain ranger and assassin the woman in front of me wasn't one of them and all i have to say is i forgot that scribe wasn't a calamity because she's so important i wonder when we'll see assassin (laughs) yeah there's a lot of questions about assassin and scribe the two the two calamities with the least relevance to cat's life and on-screen time until very near the end of book six i'm sure we'll learn more about them though I hope so. But moving past Black and Scribe and Cat sort of figuring out who they are, Black really segues in a method similar to how I'm doing now directly into a discussion on the governor in a way that I think Cat is also taken aback by. But he just, what do you think of the government? <laughs> and I, I really enjoy cat discovering something that is pretty clear to those of us you know if you've read the story before all of this is is understood and as things go on this is just naturally how things are the separation of named and government which we sort of discussed in our first episode but the blatant distinction the the massive split between the governor and black or the governor and even the empress is a fun discussion here so much so that there's a couple times where Kat is discussing things and is confused that things that benefit Mazus don't also benefit Black or the Empress. Her naivete, I suppose, in this is just so endearing. It's adorable that she's confused that Black doesn't want more taxes to come in. Huh? Isn't that the whole point? Isn't the whole point to bleed Callow dry? If it were not insensitive to later catastrophes in Callow, I would call her a sweet summer child. Oh, that is a rough term. And I really think that E.E. missed an opportunity. Missed as in did not take, not as in made a mistake, as we've established E.E. can and will do no wrong. But missed an opportunity by not having a sweet summer child in the fey conflict. <laughs> There's quite a bit of discussion sort of where where cat here is trying to well cat's not really trying she's she's being taught things through almost socratic questioning black is is leading her in certain directions and she's answering questions and it's it's a clear establishing of black as a mentor i think in a very blatant way on a reread and even pretty obvious the first time you read it and it it kind of got me wondering when i was reading this how much of black's persona that he puts on in this how much of his willingness to talk to cat and to teach how much of this is him wanting a successor or you know a squire or what have you that he that is similar to him and how much of this is him acting out a role to to create the story how much of this is his natural inclination to teach and to have somebody competent and it just with his awareness of story tropes and the way this world works i could very easily see everything that's happening here be having been pre-planned by black as a means of setting up the mentor storyline that you know does does come to be and it's just it's it adds another layer to how I'm looking at Black going forward that I obviously wasn't there the first time. 
That's a really interesting question. And my initial thoughts, which as we go forward or if you rebut them, are very flexible. I think that for an old monster like Black, someone who is a professional villain and the professional villain, he has truly made the role his own and the role has truly made him its own. I don't think there's necessarily in this kind of relationship that fits so naturally to him a distinction between what he would do of his own will and what he would do in consideration to his name uh, and name lore. We see Catherine later on, and I think later Catherine is our best analog to Black, uh, and one in whose head we get to frequently perch as observer. Outside of her careful relationship to Arthur, in order to avoid becoming a mentor to him, and outside of her explicit conflicts with the Bard, the intercessor, she doesn't take story-based consideration as the foundational structure of her action of her decisions and actions interpersonally but more typically just on a grand scale or in some specific circumstances like monologues are not a good idea for the villain and also when she eats the book she really cares then I'm trying to think of specific instances where, just to have a verbal distinction here, cat and squire, or cat and warden, or cat and duchess of moonless nights, I suppose, would have behaved differently, or were the bleed there affected interpersonal relationships, like what you mentioned? And I think, yes, Arthur is probably the biggest example of that it's hard to describe any relationship with the bard as interpersonal she's kind of beyond that label intercessional then (laughs) sure i'm thinking there's almost something there with william perhaps they they're rivals for long enough that 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 kind of thing can develop but i think the strongest place where it's somebody important to her on a personal level first might be vivian there's the fact that she switches the fact that she's cat's heir like all of these things there's a there's a cat is very careful with how she handles some vivian interactions not necessarily for shaping her name or anything like that but definitely shaping how they're perceived which is uh, controlling the narrative i don't know if that's if that's that's their correct kind of narrative i don't know if that's the meta narrative in the same way but it feels similar all that to say i think the distinction between i think you might be right the distinction between in this case amadeus and the black knight is a pretty minor one at best when you've worn a a a mantle for we get a number at some point 40 40 years something like that i suppose it really does become part of who you are in more in a way that's bigger than just how names normally work also black like cat or cat like black is the worst (laughs) yes is more than capable of doing multiple things at once with one conversation or one sentence even if we're going as far as his invitation at the end of this chapter or the requests he makes at various points previously Regardless of Amadeus or Black, it's clear that like every other single thing in this monstrosity's life, it is all very deliberate. He's not a he's not one for spontaneity. That that seems to be true. Speaking of what people are or are not one for, 
I was shocked in this section when, well, let me just read you two lines and see if you can connect the dots on how this is the most astounding thing I have read in my life. Black poured himself a fresh cup of wine, silently offering to do the same for me. I shook my head. I I would like to, as a response to that, read verbatim from the notes I took on this chapter. <clears throat> At refusing alcohol, four question marks, who is this girl? We do love our wretched little black queen. For what it's worth, she does take care of that in the next chapter. She she uses alcohol much like she'll use her other drugs later on in the series as a sort of space-creating intimidation tactic. So we don't have to wait too much longer. Oh, I think it could be interesting to have a conversation when it becomes relevant, whether and to what degree Catherine actually struggles with addiction. I know it's an explicit topic eventually, but relatively briefly and relatively containedly. I I don't look back on the story and think, oh yes, we had an addiction narrative. And it can always be, I think it can be informative as we watch her character arc to watch the development of an addiction that frankly kind of frankly was suddenly apparent to me when it got pointed out previously just having been you know she likes to have a little fun every single day to get through it and strangely i think her most in the biggest instance of internal realization of her addiction uh i don't i don't recall precisely when the external bits happen but internally doesn't that occur when she is as she likes to put it physically smoke and mirrors when she's fully winter okay so i'm right in remembering that because that means that and I know we're away from this for a bit, but we're at the start of that arc now. The arc of addiction. Here she has refused the substance. But that means that at that point, her addiction is entirely in her mind. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way. Addiction is a mental affliction with physical ramifications. But of all times, when she's more id than anything, she is fully addict. That is something we'll have to look at. And listeners, remind us of this. Be- feel free to write in. Thelongprice at gmail.com Kat's, Kat's horrified realization at, as we termed them at the end of last episode, the sort of stillborn heroes that Black is responsible for, is all the more sweet or interesting or horrifying, depending on your point of view, given how I believe one of the book's opens later on with Kat and a couple of the Woe just hunting down nascent heroes to make sure they never grow into anything stronger as they, they come into Kalo. She's absolutely horrified by this ta- this this tactic at this point in her life. And also she's taking notes. Which goes to show not only the efficacy of the Black Knight's didactic tactics, but also goes to show that she is, in many ways, well-suited to be his successor by natural inclination, by nature rather than his nurture. She isn't built into the successor to the Black Knight. She is refined. She is shaped. A little earlier on in this chapter, uh, shortly after her understanding of how things works is broken down by black agreeing with her about the governor's just incompetence and evil nature cat mentions an itch under her skin the need to know why 
she says the need to know why instead of stopping it. This is how it is. The compulsion to understand the way everything around me worked. Kat is starting to learn under Black. Kat is, uh, Black is becoming her mentor. And it really is absolutely no surprise that Kat develops an aspect built around this. Like, it makes sense that a, a, a name based on apprenticeship would have a method of learning from your mentor. Sure. But it, it is neat to see how early on Kat has this compulsion to to learn it's it's an aspect of who she is so it's nice to see it building into that so early as part of her personality before it becomes part of her role i had not noticed that in a much less prescient line or in fact a line which stands in opposition to everything we get later when he's talking about taking care of the heroes really before they can be heroes Catherine's horrified exclamation or horrified muttering upon realizing is heavens wept, which just feels profane out of her mouth. I believe we talked about that a little bit last episode, wanting to to follow where her not quite cursing, but things like that shift right now. She's still she still swears by the heavens and it still feels very wrong. She swears by the heavens. There's some part earlier about language. She does also think, uh, thank the heavens for that earlier. This chapter also has our closest brush so far with improper language. When asked about the governor, she says, I'm told most of the words I'd use for him aren't supposed to be spoken by proper ladies. Which, okay, Catherine, it echoes something from last chapter, in fact. In the previous chapter, a gentleman named Harrion at the inn, at the tavern, at the pub, curses the governor, the empire, and Catherine says, I'd heard a lot worse and more inventive serving the drinks downstairs, so the language hardly fazed me. I sure am glad to know that Catherine Foundling wasn't too disturbed by three F-bombs. I do wonder how much of that discussion and the shift towards Catherine's willingness to just be and be around, you know, particularly foul-mouthed people. I, I wonder if that is because a practical guide was billed as being pretty young adult to start, pretty YA to start, even if it doesn't end up fitting into that genre very neatly. And so there was, you know, maybe a little more care taken with language at the beginning of the story. Do you know much about the formation of the story, the way it was built, the story not in the text, but the story of the text? I came to the book very late, or rather, I came to the fifth or sixth book rather than simply to the first or even second. So I don't know how this emerged onto the internet. I can't say I know much personally, just the summary page and a bit of discussion here or there. Hopefully, at some point, someone in our audience will be able to fill us in. Hopefully. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, where we'll discuss... Zoning laws. Banter. And treason. My favorite activity. (laughs) We'll see you then. Bye.
podcast, guys, Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Smooth Waters by Serge Pavkin Music. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Zakar Valaha. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. Next week, Chapter 3, Party. This is an outro song, it's a song we sing at the end.